Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Brian Hamilton of Deerfield Academy, and I'm very fortunate to be joined by Abby Good. She's an associate professor of literature and environmental studies at Plymouth State University and the author of the brilliant new book, Agrotopias, an American Literary History of Sustainability which comes out today from University of North Carolina Press. Dr. Good, welcome to the show. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Oh, I'm, I'm so excited about this book. And, and one of the major kind of discoveries, if I can use that audacious word um, in the book, is that the, the kind of intermingling of conservation slash environmental thought with eugenics and population control discourse that we're familiar seeing in the 20th century actually dates decades earlier than we expected if we look for it in agrarian writing. And to show this, you thread together many rich and disparate strands of literary history. You kind of, you're so, so broad in your scope here. And I, I found myself constantly wondering, where did she start? You know, which strand did she pick up first to find all the others? And, and, and so at what point in your research um, did you realize you were onto something? Well, I think I realized I was onto something um, way back when I became obsessed uh, with two major texts in my in my early graduate years. Maybe I didn't know at the time that I was on to something, but I became obsessed with these two texts. And the two texts are uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman's novel, Herland. Um, it's published in 1915. It's an eco-feminist utopian novel, for those who don't know it. And Thomas Jefferson's Notes on the State of Virginia. Um, which was published back in 1785. Of course, so we have we have a late 18th century text and an early 20th century text. And these are on the surface two very different texts and two very different writers writing at different moments. Uh, so Gilman's Herland is this, as I said, eco-feminist utopian novel. Um, and Jefferson's Notes is on the surface, it's this it's report on laws and climate and population in Virginia uh, for readers in Europe, um, particularly in France. 
And um, and of course, in this text, Jefferson famously praises small farmers as the lifeblood of the agrarian nation. And I was in my early graduate years, I was studying for comprehensive exams, and the more closely I looked at Gilman's Herland, Gilman is famous for her feminist writings, the more I realized that her writings were not just ecofeminist, and in many ways, deeply eugenic, um, but also really engaged with the agrarian rhetoric of her time. And I can talk more about that as well. And Jefferson's writings, when I looked closely at them, were very concerned about cultivating a reproductively controlled and racially homogenous nation. And I discovered that his early agrarian theories were, in fact, inextricably intertwined with early eugenic theories um, from the start, or rather early eugenic concerns, however you want to call them. So what unites these two texts is that they both use uh, what I've identified in the book as an early version of sustainability rhetoric. They are both concerned that the nation's agrarian destiny is under threat, um, both worried about what they see as a general lack of reproductive and agricultural discipline. So they're writing at two different moments, but they're following similar patterns and rhetorical structures um, and, and evidencing similar anxieties about uh, reproduction and population control. And these are in some ways the chronological bookends of the project since it does span across the long 20th century um, and, and in some ways colors outside the lines of that century. And so the other thing that I'll add um, was that when I was researching this book, I found, um, well, first of all, there was a big contemporary connection for me um, because I was using this term sustainability. I had to be really clear about what I meant by sustainability since it's such a capacious and flexible and ambiguous term. Um, once I saw the presence and the venerated status of agrarianism and even just the figure of Jefferson himself in a particular st strand of sustainability rhetoric, I knew I was also onto something there because, and when I say particular strand of sustainability rhetoric, I'm talking about locavorism, um, organic, some strands of organic farming movements, um, Writings by folks like Michael Pollan and Barbara Kingsolver, who really evidence an agrarian nostalgia, but also a kind of new environmentalist uh, vision for how we engage with food and agriculture in particular. Um, so this book is really challenging, more broadly, this, this, this seemingly smooth and progressive history of mainstream American environmental thought. So it's not just about Jefferson, it's about the figures that seem obvious to us when we think about early American environmental thought. Jefferson, Thoreau, Emerson, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, John Muir, all the way up to Wendell Berry, um, you know, and today's environmental writings, of course. So it, you know, Aldo, Aldo Leopold is in there, Rachel Carson's in there. And I talk about this in the introduction. There's this genealogy um, that in some ways seems really smooth and obvious to us. And often Jefferson is at the origin point of that genealogy. Uh, and I want to question what's behind that genealogy. It's not necessarily as uh, benevolent as it seems, um, particularly when we take up agrarianism and divorce it from its racial and reproductive subtext uh, that I discuss in the 19th century. I'll talk a little bit about the critical strand of sustainability as a term. And just briefly, one of the things I discovered was that um, I was reading 
some criticism about sustainability, particularly in the humanities and in literary history. And what I found was that scholarship on sustainability in the humanities tends to fall into two general categories. The first is scholars attempting to recuperate sustainability on behalf of the humanities um, and the arts. And the other are scholars who are really interested in critiquing and jettisoning the term sustainability. Uh, So what that means is that they, and the critiques are um, really valid critiques that sustainability as a discourse is focused on maintaining the status quo, which is often wrapped up in capitalism, that it invokes um, what Stacey Alimo calls an environmentalism without an environment that sees nature as a storehouse of resources for human consumption, um, and that it's really focused on, uh, it's anthropocentric. It's really focused on the timeline of um of human human reproduction. So those are just some of those critiques. And what I found was that maybe there's a third way for us to engage with this term sustainability. Um, because, you know, one of my arguments is that whether or not we use the term sustainability, uh, it, it's, it's varied and less visible histories remain with us today and they, they, they covertly persist and they sometimes overtly persist um, in population control debates, in conservationism, in neo-agrarianism, in eco-fascism that we're seeing today. So, so I was trying to develop a kind of third approach to critical sustainability studies that really lingers in the messiness and less visible histories of these discourses. Thank you. Yeah, and I'd love to come back to that legacy at the end of the conversation. But but first, let's let's uh, dive into some of the major works that you reckon with. Um, and as you say, the book does follow this arc from from Jefferson to Gilman, but it actually doesn't uh, it doesn't start there. Actually, it's, it kind of starts out of the chronology um, with Herman Melville, and you dig into his eighteen fifty two novel Pierre, as as well as the agricultural reports that he ghost wrote for his cousin, who I guess was an agricultural commissioner in Berkshire County, Massachusetts. Um, why is Melville's work such a helpful place for you to begin excavating this unexpected history of sustainability? Well, it's a helpful place, but it's certainly an odd place. Um, Pierre, for those who haven't read it, Pierre is such a strange novel. Um, you know, we think of Melville as this oceanic writer, but Pierre is really a landed um, novel. So I'll tell you why I think it's an odd place. So Melville's novel, Pierre, published in 1852, as you said, it depicts the downfall of an agrarian nation. And I spell this out more um, in more detail in the chapter. It depicts Jefferson's worst nightmare. So we think about sustainability rhetoric. Sustainability rhetoric is a reaction to a threat. It's a recognition that we need to change our practices. Um and, and be more sustainable, as they say. Well, one of those threats, particularly in the 19th century, was this idea that the, the, the U.S. was not fulfilling its so-called agrarian destiny. Pierre depicts this nightmare, um, and it's a world of both aristocratic estates, really evocative of the old world. Jefferson was against aristocratic landowning. He found it unsustainable. And on the other hand, urban crowding, a world dogged by poverty and starvation um, and population degeneration. So since sustainability rhetoric and agrotopian visions are really born out of this sense of threat, I found it very important to begin with that threat. 
What were early sustainability advocates afraid of exactly? What drove them to seek out agrarian perfection and to um, really indulge in Jeffersonian rhetoric? And Melville's work captures those fears and those nightmares. And what we find is that those fears are just as characterized by sexual promiscuity, reproductive failure, and racial mixing as they are by poverty and agricultural decline. So this chapter reveals the racial and reproductive subtext of the agrarian anxiety at the time. And I talk more about um, what that anxiety looked like. If the book began with Jefferson um, or any familiar idyllic agrarian text or scene, I don't think the subtext would be as visible. It really had to turn the agrarian vision inside out uh, to, to show what's underlying those fears. And I should just add here that the sustainability advocates of Melville's time of the mid 19th century were not a homogenous group. They were land reformers. They were nativists. They were labor radicals who sometimes shared the same agendas and concerns, but not always. But in general, they were really worried about their unsustainable present and land reformers in particular encouraged the, form- the formation of agrotopia, small farming communities out West. And this is the agrotopian image that you see on the cover. This was printed in um, an 1840s newspaper called Young America. And it's um, really emblematic of agrotopian visions in the 1840s. But I think without Melville, we don't see the reproductive anxiety that underlies this early sustainability rhetoric. And so then we get into the book and we, and we have this kind of familiar pattern here where we have these, these, these authors that have this sense of threat, these fears and nightmares, as you say, indulging in these agrarian fantasies, dreaming up these so-called agrotopias in your word here. Um, and Jefferson's the first one we see do it. And we have this textbook understanding today, this kind of cartoon of Jefferson in our heads that, yeah, he was afraid of stuff. He was afraid of cities, <laughs> social hierarchy, economic dependence, as you said, and that kind of stuff. And that he had these dreams that were of this kind of unbroken patchwork of independent farmers across across the continent, this empire for freedom. Um, but you show in the book, you know, really thrillingly, it's much more complicated than that. His fears were much more complicated. And so in some senses, were his dreams. So what, what's lacking in our popular understanding of, of Jefferson's agrarianism? Well, there's so much there's so much in the book about Jefferson's climate thinking, about his about his participation in larger transatlantic debates about race, slavery and natural history. I won't get into all of that here, so I would just encourage listeners who are curious about these topics to you really have to read the book. You've really got to read it. UNC Press, go get it. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but for now, I will just say this about what's lacking. Um, I would say broadly speaking there are two very um, eerily distinct versions of Jefferson um, that have captivated our historical imagination, or at least there are two that I'm concerned with in this book. The first is the so-called founding farmer. Um, Some writers call him the founding gardener um, who dreamt of a sustainable nation. And the second is the infamous slave owner who fathered at least six children with formerly enslaved woman Sally Hemings, um, and who did so all while publicly opposing racial mixture of any kind. Um, And a major thesis and a major motivating force of this book is that you know, these two Jeffersons are are one and the same. These two versions of Jefferson have remained conspicuously isolated from one another, right? So the infamous slave owner obsessed with racial purity 
rarely, if ever, makes an appearance in neo-agrarian writings, for instance. They remain very separate. Um, but as I said, they're they're one and the same. So the founding farm, this founding farmer was the very slave owner, paradoxically obsessed with racial purity. And when we recognize this, what we also begin to recognize that this dual commitment to small farming and racial separation was not Jefferson's alone. And it actually became the conceptual backbone of this American sustainability rhetoric that I'm tracking. Uh, So these are seemingly separate legacies, right? An agrarian thinker on the one hand, an early advocate of racial separation and selective breeding on the other. But these legacies are deeply and inextricably intertwined. And when we see that, we see a radically different uh, environmental legacy in the U.S., and not to give the book away too much, but one of the things you get into in his in his agrotopian fantasies is that he imagined these black agrotopias away from the, the shores of the United States, outside the boundaries of the country. Um, and and it's this great moment in, when the chapter turns that you then look at it's that you look at black Americans who are not only the kind of these characters in the minds of Jefferson and others in these white agrarian fantasies, but there were black Americans who were advancing agrotopian visions of their own. You show us Martin Delaney and Sutton Griggs and Du Bois even uh, kind of reworking and exporting. Jefferson's agrarianism, and and you kind of judge this all as being both problematic and productive. So why is that? Well, I use the phrase problematic and productive um, specifically with respect to Delaney. So I'll just start with him. Uh, I see Martin Delaney as a major progenitor of a Black nationalist form of sustainability rhetoric. And Delaney's visions are productive, Um, because they turn Jeffersonian rhetoric on its head. Um, In Delaney's words, the idleness of the white man is sustained by the industry of the black man. So he really highlights that the nation was built on and sustained by um, um, the labor of enslaved blacks. And um, he also talks about um, indigenous labor as well. And and, and we can get into that as um, well. We can get into that in more detail later. But this is really productive because Delaney offers um, a powerful version of early sustainability thinking that centers Black self-determination. So as you said, Jefferson is fantasizing about all Black nations beyond the U.S. He's doing so because he's really concerned about freed Blacks um, and whites living together. He's really concerned. He's really anxious about Haiti. He's really anxious about slave rebellion. Well, are there other reasons why um, all black nations might um, might be empowering? So Martin Delaney's vision is one of black independence and black self-determination. Um, but this version also in some ways uh, maintains the agrarian focus, even as it critiques Jefferson, it maintains the agrarian focus on racial homogeneity and uh, homogeneity rather and separation. So it reinforces certain versions of um, because it is about black nations elsewhere, it reinforces certain versions of American exceptionalism and imperialism, um, imagining that you know the shores of Africa are ready to receive black immigrants. And according to Delaney, only the most elite skilled immigrants can popular can properly cultivate the land. So I get into this more in the chapter. Um, and I'll just say to conclude, for, for, for many of these figures, for Delaney, Douglas, and later Griggs, the question becomes, can freed Blacks build sustainable communities within the U.S. 
or must they leave and create their own nations, their own agrotopias elsewhere? Um, this chapter really examines those debates um, and the racial and reproductive politics of these agrarian visions. Because for Delaney in particular, um, promoting reproductive health and virility, promoting particular fixed gender roles was just as important as reclaiming the agrarian origin story of the U.S. There's so much more in there. So you no, really yeah, do have so to- much. It's yeah. so rich. <laughs> but that's really that's a really through a through line here that it's always about more than just yeah this this kind of cartoon Jefferson vision. Um, the next chapter you give us Walt Whitman. And, and it's, it's a rather startling and upsetting picture of his thought, I'll say. I'm not a, I'm, not, I'm no Whitman expert, but I kind of have these things that I felt comfortable going into the chapter admiring about him, like his championing of democracy and labor and queerness. And they're all disturbingly recast by your analysis. Um, could, you, could you introduce our listeners to Whitman the Agrotopian? So Whitman the Agrotopian um, is, is, is the architect of... Um, a eugenic conception of American sustainability. And, and I say that because his conception of American sustainability is one that aligns the land's fertility with that of the population's fertility, with that of a selectively bred, um, muscular, optimized agrarian population. So this chapter examines Whitman's career. It examines a broader trend across Whitman's corpus. Um, and this identify this as just a tendency to adapt the Jeffersonian ideal of small farming to early eugenic concepts of selective breeding and racial improvement. So in the years preceding the Civil War, Whitman was particularly anxious about the erosion of agrarian values and by extension, um, the nation's sustainability. Uh, but but and and here he kind of takes up the free soil movement and really engages in agrarian rhetoric. But as that movement lost traction, um, as slavery threatened to expand, uh, he recognized the limitations of a predominantly political and economic approach to agrarianism because um, he saw the nation failing to embrace a free labor model. So he became really influenced by the rise of um, so-called racial science in the U.S. And he's especially interested in uh, something called phrenology. Um, and, And in his interest in that discourse, he developed a physiological and hereditarian vocabulary for describing the working class and agrarian labor laborers in his early writings. So I show that in this chapter and, and really what he's doing in those, those pre-Civil War writings is he's depicting selective breeding and an, a kind of early racial progress as the path to a sustainable nation. And then after the Civil War, Whitman's writings become much more self-assured about American sustainability um, so much so that he develops this expansive global agrotopian vision of diverse and transnational forms of labor. So he diversifies the agrarian nation. Um, and, and so we see laborers working in industrial as well as agrarian fashions. And these visions are much more confident because they are rooted in theories of survival of the fittest, um, in theories of racial extinction, so-called evolutionary laws. Whitman became really invested in the, the certainty of evolutionary laws. So unlike Jefferson's agrotopian visions, which, as you say, they promote all Black nations elsewhere, separate, 
Whitman's global visions aren't anxious about racial separation because um, at that point, Whitman didn't think that racial separation was a problem because he believed in the sort of racial evolution and inevitable improvement. Um, so they're not anxious about racial separation because they're so rooted in these notions of survival of the fittest. So this is uh, a deeply eugenic Whitman. This is a Whitman really interested in heterosexual reproduction um, and in selective breeding. Um, and this is a Whitman that's really interested in um, the optimization of a laboring population. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, it's really something to, to, to see it again in that way. Um, and that and that brings us back to Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And you introduced her as the author of Herland, a fascinating book. Maybe lay readers know her more as, as just the author of the Yellow Wallpaper from, from grammar school. Um, but uh, but y- y- when you look at her, you similar to Jefferson, you say that we have these legacies that she leaves today, or these kind of portraits of her that we really keep separate from each other, right? And and you show that you know if, if we actually think about it through how she's dreaming up these agrarian paradises, we can see how her you know, ecofeminism and her socialism and her and her racism and her eugenical thought all build off one another. So could you take us back through this a little bit about how that works? Sure. So I begin, like I said, I begin by discussing Gilman's utopian novel, Herland. Um, and I'm looking at Herland as an experiment in asexual sustainability because Herland, Herland is a communal, all-female society that reproduces asexually. Um, it's a society where population control is almost comically easy to solve because there are no private nuclear families. Um, so in this regard, Herland as a text challenges the sustainability rhetoric of its time uh, because Gilman is interested in critiquing that sustainability rhetoric. It's that sustainability rhetoric was really invested in the patriarchal nuclear family as an important site for ensuring the nation's future. And here I'm talking about the explicit early 20th century movements in conservation, eugenics, and country life. And the country life movement was an agrarian uplift movement. But unlike the U.S., Herland actually achieves the goals of all three of these movements. And it does so in large part because it's freed from the strictures of the private nuclear family. So in this regard, I see this novel as an early contribution to the population control movement, which we would associate with something like Paul Ehrlich's The Population Bomb. Um, You know, it's an early contribution to that movement because... um, like that movement itself, it urged Americans to look beyond their private familial interests and consider the public environmental impacts of their reproductive choices. So here I would say, you know, and we're talking about Gilman's legacy as a writer as well. It's tempting to treat Herland's eugenic, feminist, and environmentalist agendas as separate um, or as necessarily conflicting elements. Scho- scholars often will bracket one of those elements. Um, But these elements are, in fact, 
integrally intertwined and mutually reinforcing. And the same goes for Gilman's uh, mixed legacy as a writer. So this partnership, I think, becomes especially clear if we look at Herland as an agrotopia, as a racially perfected, sustainable elsewhere, as um, an, an asexual adaptation of the Jeffersonian ideal, the long lost Jeffersonian ideal, um, and as an alternative to what Gilman saw as a degenerating, crowded, and and really, really far from agrarian world. That's great. And that's, and that's what's really so haunting about the book is that each of these chapters is fascinating in its own right to think about these these works. But then you realize that, that what it all adds up to is that it's... it's um, it's impossible to kind of just pick what you want to from the past and be like, oh, this this is the piece of this that lived on and we love. And this is the piece of that was sort of a weird 19th century thing that you know, we're glad it fell away that, as you say, integrally inter- intertwined and mutually reinforcing. And so that so that's when you think about the the legacy of this literary tradition, you know, we might be able to draw, we could draw like a say like, oh, there's a line between these agrotopian ideas of this time and, and eco-fascism today. But you, in, in your conclusion, you say you're, you're actually more interested in, in the quiet legacy, in your words, of that agrarianism. Where do you see that quiet legacy today? You said a bit about this early on, but I'd love to hear you speak more at length about it. And you know, and also, where do you see that the legacy being challenged? So yeah, so the legacy is quiet, and in some respects, it is frag- fragmented. Um, in the epilogue, I look at two agrotopian legacies in the 20th and 21st century, and the first example focuses on um, the Sierra Club and the Sierra Club's. Uh, 1960 text, This is the American Earth, which is a photo photo text. Um, it's a coffee table book. And this is a text that combines wilderness preservation and population control rhetoric of the time. And it does so uh, by depicting a, a, a once pristine new world wilderness threatened by invading foreigners and sprawling cities. So it really shows that partnership between preservation and population control. And I think this text might seem like an odd choice for an agrotopian epilogue because preservationists really sought to preserve rather than cultivate the wilderness. Um, But this is precisely my point. I really am interested in showing the, the unexpected and far reaching and at times partial influence of these agrotopian ideas, even in traditions as seemingly unagrarian as wilderness preservation, because there is a relationship there. So I argue that that 20th century anxiety about overpopulation and about um, sort of foreign invaders is in part a legacy of this 19th century agrotopian literature. And then I turn to a very different example with Michelle Obama's White House Kitchen Garden. Um, And this garden is depicted in that 2012 book, her 2012 book, American Grown. So it really engages in the kinds of um, national narratives that a first lady's office is expected to, in some ways, reproduce. The White House Kitchen Garden is a contemporary example of neo-agrarianism because it promotes community gardens and farmers markets, and it calls on Americans to reconnect with the soil. Um, And this is a text that envisions a multicultural and inclusive agrarian future. And I'm really emphatic about that in the epilogue. But it also reaffirms Jefferson's privileged status as a progenitor of American sustainability thinking. And I even mentioned, you know, at the time, if you 
as I was writing this, if you do a Google search of Michelle Obama and Thomas Jefferson, there are in general two genres of articles that emerge. One is um, about the White House kitchen garden. Uh, Michelle Obama planted um, seeds from Jefferson's estate in her garden and named the beds the Jefferson beds. Um, And then the other is about... um, uh, Michelle Obama's ancestry, her enslaved ancestors. And this is a New York Times article that likens um, Michelle Obama's lineage to that of Jefferson's ancestors. So um, these two stories feature the same characters, but they they don't overlap. Um and so I think that this this kind of really highlights Jefferson's status and how we tend to quarantine Jefferson as an agrarian thinker from Jefferson as a slave owner. Um, and I think that together, these two examples really show that there are diverse iterations and offshoots of agrotopian thinking um, in a broad swath of modern environmentalist discourses. And then I discuss why agrotopian thinking still poses a danger to us today. Um, so in terms of challenging agrotopian thinking, the more that American sustainability rhetoric reproduces myths and fantasies of agrarian nostalgia um, and, and Jeffersonian heroism, the more it overlooks environmental justice crises. And environmental justice is where I end up in the book, um, right? Environmental justice crises that are at least in part, I think, products of this very um, this very rhetoric, this American sustainability rhetoric. So we have powerful models for confronting these crises. Um, for example, Vandana Shiva's Earth Democracy, which is really about, um, this is a concept that prioritizes ecological security, um, that, that challenges the commoditization of life systems of the poor, um, and that really relocates, um, and here I'm using Shiva's words, relocates the sanctity of life in all beings um, and all people, irrespective of class, gender, or religion. So, and and another example, of course, is Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, Robin Wall Kimmerer's braiding sweetgrass and her discussion of the gift economy um, and mutual responsibility, mutual responsibility in multi-species relationships, or her account of what she calls the honorable harvest, the honorable harvest that she presents as an alternative to sustainability, um, and what she calls the indigenous canon of principles and practices that ask us to give back in reciprocity for what has been given. So this idea of reciprocity um, in ecological relations. And then finally, Wangari Maathai's intersectional environmentalism. Rob Nixon calls it an intersectional environmentalism. Wangari Maathai's model of foresters without diplomas, where rural women uh, work to restore their ecological communities alongside their political agency and their livelihoods. Um, and so these approaches are examples of uh, environmental justice models that are focused on rebuilding the commons and remaining in place. Agrotopian visions are about elsewheres. These are about remaining in place rather than imagining another elsewhere or another new world, so to speak. So this is really about defending existing homes and longstanding ecological practices rather than imagining an ideal elsewhere. Um, I think they contrast powerfully with agrotopian models. And that really shows the continuity between agrotopian thinking and wilderness ideology. And I remember when I first read scholarship on wilderness, you know, it blew my mind. And then I started seeing wilderness ideology everywhere. 
And I'm sure I'm going to see Agrotopian thinking everywhere now that I've read your book. And uh, to, to wrap up here, I don't, I don't want to sound greedy because this book is such a gift. But uh, to close, I'm wondering if you have any future projects you're willing to give our readers, our listeners a preview of? Sure. Um, and thank you so much for your kind words um, about the book. Um, my current my current project that I'm dreaming up is, you know, tentatively titled American Climates. Um, it's focused on the concept of climate. And it is um, a genealogy of racist and anti-racist climate thinking in the Americas. Um and in American literary history. So, so climate, the concept of climate has been central for early American scholars, um, scholars who are studying theories of racial transformation and human variability, this theory of the body as a porous, uh, porous envelope, for instance. Um, if you read um, Greta LaFleur's book, The Natural History of Sexuality in Early America, for instance, she takes up this concept of the body as a porous uh, porous envelope. But one of the questions that this project asks is what happens to the concept of climate after the colonial era as theories of, as scientific racism becomes popular, as theories of static fixed racial difference uh, gain popularity and take hold. Because we often assume that theories um, theories of static racial difference are counter to climatological understandings of human difference. Climatological understandings of human difference understand the body as variable and not as static. This project's gonna challenge that. This project's going to see, uh, look at climate as central to the rise of scientific racism. So the first third of the project will show how this happens. And then the final two thirds will discuss uh, what I'm calling counter theories of climate and racial thinking developed by women and writers of color. So how do literary representations of tropical heat, uh, violent storms of polar extremity, how are these catalysts and tools for successful slave rebellions and forms of anti-racist and anti-colonial resistance? Uh, so it's a history of climate thinking that's fundamentally tied to social justice, but also to the rise and popularization of racism in the U.S. Wow, 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 wow. Oh, my goodness. I can't wait. I will wait, but I can't wait. Uh, so anyway, but for the time being, the, this book, again, is Agrotopias, an American literary history of sustainability. Comes out today from UNC Press, and its author is, and my guest has been, Abby Good. Abby, thanks so much for your time and for this book. Thank you so much for the conversation, Brian.